Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another one of our weekly podcasts. My name is Richard. On behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Last week, we looked at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1-6, through 6, as we discussed the deeper meaning of persecution for Christians. This week, we continue in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7-11 through 11 with Pastor Chris, as we discuss what persecution does for us as Christians. Now, with all that said and done, let's go ahead and dive into this week's message with Pastor Chris. Pain, sorrow, sadness. Those are words that we often associate with hard times. Would you agree with that? We, we go into seasons in life where they're, they're just every single thing is an absolute struggle. Sometimes things go great, but there are seasons in our life when just nothing goes in our favor. But what the Bible teaches us is hardships, sufferings, persecutions shouldn't be synonymous with hard times, sadness, and sorrow, but with victory, with life, and with glory. And that's really Peter's message for us this morning. What's the topic we've been studying over the last month? Persecution. One of us has been awake. <laughs> Persecution, suffering, hardships, trials. Peter over and over and over again is telling us the message of persecution and suffering in this world. He told us the message of suffering. We saw that three weeks ago. And the message of suffering is this. Do not fear the world's intimidation. Don't fear them. Don't be intimidated by them. Why? Peter says, because you are blessed. That's the message of God to his people during times of severe hardship. You're a blessed person. Don't be fearful. Don't be intimidated. Keep doing you. Then Peter tells us why we are to live that way, because he gives us the model of Jesus Christ. He says, look at Jesus. Look at the persecution, the suffering, the sadness, the hardship that he went through, and his life ended in victory. So Peter says to the Christian, Peter says to you and I today, suffer and it's okay because the end result is victory. Then last week we saw the meaning of suffering persecution. And I'm not gonna ask if you remember, you can just nod your head, you know, up and down, yes, if you remember last week's message. The meaning of suffering persecution is for the purpose of drawing closer to God. And you remember that from last week. What do tough times, what do people do, uh, uh, or what do people draw you to do when they're trying to take away your job, trying to take away your freedom, trying to take away your ability to worship God? It draws you closer to God. And so Peter is saying, even in times of severe hardship, you are blessed and your walk gets tighter with God. Your mission in life is to do God's will, Peter said last week. And then he says, you forsake the world because the world is going to forsake you. And so the meaning of our persecution is to make you the very best Christian. You can be this side of heaven. And now today, we're going to look at what persecution does for us. And it causes you and I to live our best life. We can go through life moping and whining and complaining and saying, it's not fair. Woe is me. I shouldn't be going through this. God, why are you allowing this? Or you can live like the Bible calls us to live our best life, even in times of troubling times and hardship. And that's really Peter's message to us this morning. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to study verses 7 through 11. First Peter chapter four, verses seven through 11. And this is how we can live our best life, even in troubling times. So let's look at the, the first point. And Peter's first point is our motivation. What's our motivation for living a life that is set on fire for God? Now, if you're not awake right now, believe me, you'll be awake. Verse seven, the motivation for living our best life, Peter says, the end of all things is near. Amen. Did that wake you up? Yeah. 
The end of all things is near. If there's anything to motivate us, it's the judgment of God. That's the great equalizer, and that's the great motivation in our lives. The motivation is the end is near. Now, what do you think? What event do you think Peter's referring to when he talks about this event or the end of times? What would you guys think Peter is referring to? The second coming of Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Well, Peter already talks about it. In chapter 1 and verse 5 and 7, Peter writes this, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So what's the last time? What are the end times or the end days? Verse 7, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, get this, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now in our text, and this is the portion we're gonna study next week, in chapter four, verse 12 and 13, Peter talks about this event again. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. So Peter is saying the motivation to living your best life is an event that's coming in the future. And that's the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, what is the second coming? The second coming, it comes after the first coming, right? And I know that's hard to, to rationalize, but that's the truth. Remember, Jesus came first as a little baby in a manger. And his life was a life where he was despised. He was rejected. He was alone, a man of grief acquainted with sorrows. His best, one of his best friends betrayed him. He goes on his triumphal entry to Jerusalem, the king riding on a donkey. In ancient days, that's symbolic of a king to make peace. And so Christ came in his first coming with a spirit of submission, a spirit of peace to reconcile the world back to God. And Jesus was crucified, he was buried, he resurrected, and he ascended, and the disciples were amazed. They're, they're staring off into the sky as, as Jesus goes away. And the angel says, why are you staring off in space? Why are you being spacey? You know, get your mind off of the sky and get your, back, uh, get your mind back onto your own agenda. Don't you know that he's going to come the same way that he left? Speaking of the second coming of Jesus Christ. The first coming, meek and mild. The second coming, he's coming to wage war. No longer a king on a donkey, symbolizing peace, but a king on a horse, which was the ancient symbol of war. The king comes to make war. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 16, speaks of the coming of Christ. Revelation 19, 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so Jesus comes, and what does he do when he gets here? He does 
three sets of two. And it's not a workout regimen, but there are three pairs of things that Jesus does. First thing that he does, the first pair of two, is he resurrects. Resurrects the dead, those who are alive in Christ and those who are dead in Christ. Everybody is resurrected. And so for those who are God's elect, those who are in Christ, they're resurrected to a newness of life. But to those who are unbelieving, they are resurrected, as Daniel 12, 2 says, to everlasting contempt. So Christ comes and he raises everybody. It's, it's one big party, and then Jesus begins to separate. You, God's elect, are on my right. You, unbelievers, are on my left. Then the second set of two comes. The second set, or what Jesus does after the resurrection, is the judgment. You have the judgment of believers, and that's known as the Bema Seat of Christ. We know it as believers as rewards day. We stand before Jesus himself, and we give an account for everything we've done in this world. All our gifts, our talents, our resources, our times, every opportunity God has set us up. And you know, God is just pitching us little softballs, and he's expecting us to knock them out the park. And so all our works are put through a big furnace, and out the other side is your rewards. Whatever hasn't been burnt up, whatever works have been true and faithful and valid, these are your rewards for eternity. But for the unbelievers, they stand before Christ in what's known as the great white throne judgment. In Revelation chapter 20, starting at verse, um, let's start at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from, though, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, stand before the throne, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the book, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then there's two eternities after Jesus' judgment. For the Christian, it's life eternal, dwelling with God forever. Revelation 22, one through five. Then he showed me a river of water, of life clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the lamb. And in the middle of the street on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in every season. And the leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. And they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of a light of the lamp, nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And then you have the unbeliever's judgment. And the scripture says, they will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be suffering day and night. It will be a place where the flame is not quenched, where the worm does not finish eating. And then sadly, Paul tells us that in this final judgment, there will be a complete absence of the glory of God, a complete absence of God's glory. Now today, unbelievers, they receive common grace. People can be God-hating, Christ-rejecting, Bible-burning, church-violating, doesn't matter. People can be that way and still receive God's grace. They can receive food, which is enjoyable. 
They can receive air conditioning. They can have children that make them laugh. They could have great relationships. They could have a whole bunch of money. They could have fantastic experiences. And they can have in their own mind this thought that I don't need God. My life is pretty good. But their life is good because there's a common grace given from the glory of God. That common grace and all of God's glory will be eternally removed. And so Peter is telling you and I, this is good motivation to get your act right. Knowing that the second coming of Christ, what does it say in our verse? Is what? Is near. So Jesus comes, he resurrects, he judges, he sends people off into their eternal state. He judges the nations and then he sets up a physical kingdom here on earth where he rules and he reigns forever. And verse seven says, the end or that event is near. Now, how many of you, when you read that, think to yourself, this was written 2000 years ago and it still hasn't happened? Has anybody, or is that just me? Okay. All right. So we read that and we say, how near can it really be? The word near is not minutes or hours or weeks. It means epics or calendar events. It really means events. The coming of Christ is the next big event on God's plan for culminating or finalizing his plan. In fact, the word, the word near or the word end means culmination or consummation. So God's going to consummate what he has started redeeming the bride to the groom at the second coming of Christ. And that event is here. It's here. You remember chapter one, verse three. We talked about this idea of an inheritance. God is going to give an inheritance to his people, but it happens through one man. Do you remember that one man? God promised him way back in Genesis. Abraham, God went to honest Abe and he said, Abe, I'm going to give you a people. I'm going to give you a place. Kings are going to come through your line and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Paul tells us in the New Testament, faith in Christ gives you access to Abraham's inheritance because you're a descendant. And so the whole Bible is God's plan to honor his word with Abraham. The people happened between Genesis and Exodus. God raised up millions of people there in Egypt. And then God delivered them. And then Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is God teaching them how to be a nation, how to be a people that gives him glory. And then what's right after Deuteronomy? So we have Joshua, right? Joshua comes on the scene and he says, uh, okay, I, I got to take these people to the promised land. So God already fulfilled this promise about a people. Now he has to give them the land. And so you see that happen in Joshua and there in Judges. God is giving the land to his people, just like he promised to Abraham. He gives them the people and then they're a nation. And then what was the next promise? Kings shall come through your line. So who does God raise up in Abraham's seed to be a king? King David, a man after God's own heart. And then God tells David something. David wants to build God a, a, a temple, right? A, a, an amazing place because he's a, a, in a palace and he sees God in a tent and he says, that's not right. And so God is blessed by David's offering. And so God tells David, I'm going to bless you. Through your seed, there's going to be a king who reigns forever and ever. But we don't know who that is. So the Old Testament ends, and all we have is the promise of a coming king. Well, then comes Christ's first coming. Here's his first coming. The king is incarnate, and he fulfills God's law. And he dies and is buried and is resurrected and is ascending into heaven and then now he's going to come a second time to culminate or finalize what he has started. So the next great event is the coming of Jesus Christ. So Peter tells us, what are you waiting for? 
Why are you living like a, a life that's just so filled with slack? so undisciplined. The coming of Jesus is coming quickly. And the whole Bible is filled with this idea of being ready. Romans chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 10, all of these uh, admonitions to be ready for Christ's return. It can happen at any moment. And Peter says, the motivation for living your best life is the second coming of Christ. Now let's look at the means of living your best life. If Christ is coming, how do we live? What are the means in which or what do we have to do in order to accomplish that? He goes on and he says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, this is what you need to do. Be of sound judgment and of sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. What's the first means to living our best life? It starts with the mind. Control your mind. That's what Peter says. The word sound judgment, it means to take hold of your mind. When Jesus in Mark 4 and Mark 5 was going around Galilee, he came across this guy. His name was Legion. You remember? Because he had many what? He had many demons, and so he was named Legion. And so Jesus comes, casts out the devil, and then we see uh, this man was clothed and sitting in his right mind. That's the exact same word as the word Peter uses here, sound judgment. And it means to just take hold of your own mind and to prioritize really spiritual over the physical. Have a priority spiritual over the physical, or as Paul likes to put it, set your mind on the things above, not on the things below. So we are called to guard or watch our mind. Why is that? Why do you think the Bible tells us to guard our mind? Where your mind goes, you go, period. Whoever has your mind has you. If God has your mind, he has you. If the world has your mind, the world has you. And did you know how important you are? That companies spend billions and billions and billions of dollars so that they can have what's in between your ears? You look at Facebook, you look at Google, you look at Amazon, you look at all the big tech, you look at advertising companies, everything is geared towards human psychology. Every bit of data is being tracked on you. Big tech knows you better than you know yourself. And they do it for one purpose, to keep your mind engaged with them so that you're not engaged with anything else. I mean, billions go into capturing your mind. And so Peter's, uh, his wish, not his wish, his command is guard your mind. Have a, have a trap, a steel trap over your head, not physically, but, but figuratively. Guard your mind and be sober and sober spirit or sober for the purpose of prayer. And the word sober means to be on alert. So we, we take hold of our mind, we guard our mind, we keep on alert. And then why does Peter tell us to do it? For what purpose? Prayer. Living our best life starts up here. And it's when we have a mind that understands our priorities in life that God's things are more important than the world's things, that God's views are more important than my views, that what God says is more important than what I think. And so we prioritize and we guard our mind so that we know how to pray. What does James say? Do you remember when we were studying? He goes, you, you ask and are you, you, yeah, you ask amiss. 
You, you want, but you don't have. You ask, but you don't receive. Why? Because when you do ask, you ask amiss. What James is saying is when it comes to prayer life, some people aren't getting what they should be getting. Some people aren't realizing what they can realize. Some people aren't getting to the place God can take them because their prayer life is off. And they're not seeking God. They're not asking God. And when they do ask, they ask outside of God's will. And so nothing ever really happens in their life. And you know, we all know Christians like this. They go to church for 20, 30 years and they just stay exactly where they're at. The best way to guard against that is protect your mind, thinking like God thinks so that you can have communion with him in prayer. You know his will in your life. You know his will in this world. You know what he wants of you. And then you ask accordingly so that you can do all that God wants you to do. And so we first start with the mind. Peter says, guard it. Then we go now from the mind to the heart. So we go from guarding the mind to letting go of the heart. We go from intimate relationship with God to now intimate relationship with other people, from the vertical to the horizontal. Verse eight, and above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sin. We've explained what fervent means in the past. It's that anatomical word that means to stretch a muscle almost to the point of breaking. Peter says, when you got your mind right, then now let your heart go and love fervently other Christians, primarily those within the, the church or household of God. Love until it hurts you is what Peter's command for us is. Love until it almost breaks you. That's our command. Really, we're called to live or to love just like Jesus loved. And Jesus loved one sacrificially. The Bible says he hungered. Why did Jesus hunger when he could have just made bread and fish? Right? Jesus didn't sleep. He would be up way before everybody and go to bed way later than everybody. He ministered day and night. Jesus sacrificed out of love day in and day out, ultimately where he says greater love has no, no, more, uh, no greater than this. He uh, who lays his own life down for his friends. Jesus' love was characterized by sacrifice even to the point of the cross. Jesus loved sacrificially. Number two, Jesus loved through serving other people. He loved through serving other people. What did he do in the upper room to his disciples? He washed their feet. Here's God in human flesh washing dirty feet. He served his people. Jesus even made breakfast for his people in John chapter 21. He wasn't above making breakfast for his boys. He served his people. And then lastly, he loved with intimacy. See, we can serve and we can sacrifice for each other, but if there's no love there, then it, it's cold. It's very cold, right? It's impersonal. And so we are called to sacrifice and to serve each other with intimacy, with compassion, with empathy, with love. There was a, a teenage girl, and, and we all know how teenage girls are. Sorry, Giselle. But we know how they are, right? They, they have homework, and they have their cell phone, and, and, and those are the, that's the world. And so here this teenage girl got this, got this uh, horrible chore of having to put her sister uh, to bed every single night. That was one of her chores. And so every night she would take her little sister into the bed, tuck her in, read her a bedtime story, and then say good night and go on. Well, this girl had this ingenious plan. What if I just record all of these stories on, an, on the iPad? And now my sister, at any time she wants, can just press play and she could have, uh, hear me read a bedtime story to her at night. 
now I can do my homework and now I can be on my phone and I have it all figured out. And so she recorded the stories. She went into the room. She set up the, the iPad and she said, sis, isn't this great? You can watch these videos anytime you want. And her sister said, no. And then this is her reasoning. She said, because the iPad can't kiss me and tell me I love you. And that's really at the heart of Christian service. We can serve, we can sacrifice, but at the end of the day, it's about love. Being there for people, kissing them, telling them I love you, telling them I'm here for you, being alongside them, sacrificing whatever it takes in order to share love. And so Peter says, you, when you move from the mind and you, you captive or control the mind, then you let go of your heart. And then what's the reason? Why are we to fervently love one another? Because what? Love covers a multitude of sin. Now, what Peter's not talking about, Peter's not referring to if you love people, because of that love, God's going to forgive you of sin. He's not referring to this uh, atoning work of love. He's not like Ziggy Marley, where love is his religion. That's not, you know, the, the, the crux of what Peter is saying. What Peter is saying is this. If you guys know that I love you, if you guys know that I really love you, and I serve you, and I'll sacrifice for you, and I'm, I'm intimate and compassionate with you, when I sin against you, you'll be able to forgive me because you guys know that I love you. And that's what Peter is referring to. A love covers a multitude of sin. We're all sinners here. And if you don't believe so, well, we can baptize you. We'll go right over the pool after service. We're all sinners here. We all make mistakes. We're all gonna rub each other the wrong way. We're all gonna say things or do things that's gonna offend someone else. But if we know that we love each other, we're able to forgive each other and we can move on and we can grow closer. And this is important because where is this passage placed in? What's the context of this passage? <clears throat> Suffering what? Persecution. The Roman empire, the Roman government wants to kill these people. That's the context. And Peter is saying, you don't have the world. You don't have anybody except who? Yourselves. Yourselves. And so love each other so that love can keep you guys binded. Because if you guys splinter, there's nowhere to go. The world's against you. All you have is yourself. Stay together. How do you do that? Through fervent love. And then love is even poured out further in verse uh, 10. Or verse nine, be hospitable to one another without complaint. So when we talk hospitality in church, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Coffee donuts, right? Coffee donuts. That's hospitality, right? The, the word hospitality here, biblical hospitality, it means to literally to love the stranger. To love the stranger. And it has the idea of bringing someone into the home. To, to live with them or for them to live with you. That's what biblical hospitality is. And so Peter is saying you love the brotherhood and you also love the stranger, the person that you don't know. Now, first, first century Christianity, maybe you don't believe me, but they didn't have Airbnb. No Airbnb. There was no Craigslist. They couldn't go around searching for apartments when Paul wanted to go from Galatia to Rome or uh, wanted to go from, um, I don't know, there you go, wanted to go from place to place. So where did Christians go? They went to other Christians' homes and they stayed with people they didn't know. And that's the idea of hospitality. Bring in your brothers, take in your sisters, love those who are strangers to you. And I think you could even take it further because there's biblical precedence throughout. We don't only love the Christian stranger, but we just love the stranger. And the stranger in the Bible is described as people who are less fortunate than yourself. When you look at the Mosaic law, 
How many times does God make provisions for the immigrant? Because the Jews were, in, the Hebrews were immigrants in Egypt for the, the poor, for the widows, for the orphans, all these people who, who are struggling in life. God says, you take care of those people. You don't turn your back on those people. You don't just look the other way when you're at a red light, when the guy is holding a sign in your face. You take care of those people and you love the stranger. Listen to what Jesus says in uh, Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, and this is speaking of the judgment, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. How do you live your best life? What are we motivated by? Not a trick question. What are we motivated by? Verse seven, the second coming of Christ that lights a fire in us. Now that we have that fire lit, what do we do? We guard our mind. We let go of our hearts, loving one another. And then we get active with our hands and our feet. Starting at verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is utter, uh, speaking the utterances of God, whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So we guard our minds, we let go of our hearts in love, and then lastly, we get active with our hands and our feet. And he deals with now serving one another. Verse 10 says, as each one has received a special gift. What do you think that, that gift is referring to? Spiritual gifts, the empowering of the Spirit, the Spirit's giftings to you and to me. Now, if you flip to 1 Corinthians 12, I'm gonna read three verses out of order, but it really puts together what spiritual gifts are like. 1 Corinthians 12, verse four, seven, and 11 is really an overview of what spiritual gifts are. 1 Corinthians 12, 4. Now there are variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. How many gifts does God the Holy Spirit give? Many. There's a variety. Verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Why does God give us spiritual gifts? For the what? Common good. So there are many gifts. The purpose of these gifts are to bless others. Then verse 11, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. Who gives these gifts away? God, the Holy Spirit. Who gets, who gets to choose these gifts? God, the Holy Spirit. Guess who doesn't get to choose these gifts? You. There are so many people who says, I want to preach. And they, they just don't have the gift. And that's okay, but stay in your lane. Because it's God who wills, and it's God who gives gifts. We, if you don't have the gift of teaching, you can go through seminary, you can go through preaching classes, you can do, turn every stone 
or unturn, whatever the, the quote is, flip over every, look underneath every rock. How about that one? And it's still not going to work for you. It's God the Spirit who gives a variety of gifts for the common good of all, and it's God who gives the gifts. Now, there are three categories of gifts. The first gift are, is known as uh, the, oh my goodness, I just drew a mean blank. There are three gifts. The first gift is the, the first categories are the sign gifts. And you see the apostles doing these all the time. Ray, remember a guy fell, a Peter preached for a whole night and the guy fell asleep, fell out of a window and died. Doesn't make me feel so bad about my preaching. A guy literally died from his preaching. And then Peter, Paul comes and resurrects him from the dead. Peter, Paul gets bit by a snake and he doesn't die. Peter and John, they're at the temple, Acts chapter 3. A guy is crippled and they say, stand up in the name of Jesus and he rises. These are the sign gifts validating their message. Second group are the speaking gifts. And these are the gifts like words of wisdom, words of encouragement, teaching, exhortation. These are the speaking gifts. Then you have the last uh, group and these are the serving gifts. There are only two groups of people in the church, the elders, and these are required to have the gift of teaching, and then the deacons or deaconess, and these are the required to be the servants of the church. And so God, the Holy Spirit, gives gifts for the common good of all. Peter goes on and says, and this is why you are given the gift, or since you've been given the gift, what does he say? It starts with the E, right there employ. Since God has given you a gift for the common good of other people, since it's God who sovereignly gave you that gift, it was for the purpose of employing it. Now, I know that, that in, in Southern California Christianity, that's hard to believe that God wants us to work, but it's the truth. He gives us gifts so that we can employ our gifts. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What is a steward? It's a person who watches over the master's estate. When the master's gone, the steward of the house, the steward of the estate takes care of everything. So when the master comes, he would have left it just as he found it. Christ came the first time and then he left. And the stewards are the church. You and I are the stewards of what God has started. And we are call, called to make sure that we're doing everything that we are called to do until the master comes back, until the king come back, comes back to reclaim what he has taken. God has given and trusted you with a gift or gifts. You are unique. You are a Christian snowflake in the best sense of the term, not in the negative sense of the term. You are unique and you have amazing gifts. You have unique gifts. You are different from the person to the left or to the right of you. You may both have the same gift, but varying capacities. Romans chapter 13 says there are varying talents and varying faiths and varying giftedness, even within the gifts of God's spirit. But you are called to be a good steward of those gifts. And that's why Peter tells us we need quantity and we need quality in verse 11. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So this is quantity and quality. You've been given a gift, use it and use it again and use it again and use it again. And then quality. Peter says, if you preach, if you've been called to teach and preach, then you better preach God's word. Don't go teach in financial classes and that'd be the thrust of your life, you know? Don't go teach in, you know, mathematics when God wants you to preach the gospel. If you're a teacher, teach God's word. 
as if speaking the utterances of God. And if God has called you to be a servant, serve God. This is quality. This is actually putting forth everything you have to serve the Lord. I've been pastoring four years now, which is crazy. It's really sad to say that a lot of people see serving as a volunteership. I'm volunteering, therefore I can be late. Therefore, I don't have to work that hard. Therefore, I could slack off. After all, I'm a volunteer, you know, I don't get paid for this. That is a horrible attitude to have, horrible. God says, if you're a teacher, preach your butt off. If you're a servant, serve your butt off. I love what Martin Luther King said, and I'm probably gonna botch it. But he said, if God has called you to be a sweet streeper, then be the best sweet streeper you can be. Sweep the streets like Michelangelo painted. Sweep the streets like uh, William uh, Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep the streets so that all the hosts of heaven, when they look down and see you sweeping streets, may say, there goes the greatest sweet streeper. Sweet street sweeper. And that's why MLK is MLK and I am who I am. His point is this, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Well, I want to be a preacher. Too bad. That's okay. I don't want to be a preacher. I'd rather be sweeping. I Honestly, I'd rather be in the background and no one know who I am and me and God just work it out. I would rather do that. But God has called me here so we do the best we can do. Right? We are many members of one body. You might be a big toe. You might be a liver. You might be uh, the second rib. You might be whatever. But every part of the body is important. Imagine if the kidneys don't work. Imagine if the feet don't walk. Imagine if the ACL isn't there. The body doesn't function well. God has called you to use your gifts, to use your gifts often, and to use your gifts to the very best extent or the greatest quality that you can do it. So we looked at the motivation, which is? Got it. You guys got it. Number two, we look at the means. How do we live our best life? We guard our mind, we let go of our hearts, and we get active with our hands and our feet. And now what's the mission of living our best life? What's the driving force behind it? Verse 11 is God's glory. Verse 11. By the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He finishes off with a doxology or a praise to God. The purpose of our lives is to bring glory to God. What's another word for glory? Because I think we get, we get lost living for the glory of God. What is another word for glory? Pleasure. Pleasure. Okay. Honor. Honor. That's really the, the, the crux of it. We live to honor God. That's the point. Our work here on life is not to leave our own legacy behind, but the legacy of God. That's the whole point. To live so we can bring glory and honor to God. Jesus said it this way. Let your light, what? Shine. Let your light shine before men so that they see what? What are they looking at? Let your light shine before men that they see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. So as, guess what? We're guarding our heart, our minds, and we're praying with God, communing with God. As we're letting our hearts go, and we're loving on people, both Christians and non-Christians, those in need, as we're being active, wholeheartedly serving God, 
we are doing what God has called us to do. In that, we honor God. Jesus said it another way. Love the Lord your God with what? And what? He uses one more word, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Get your mind right, get your heart right, get your actions right, and you'll be loving God, and you'll be loving people, and guess what? You will fulfill God's law. You will honor God. You will bring God glory. That's what Peter's saying. Guard your heart, let go of your mind, get active, and the mission, the purpose of it all is you are bringing the Lord glory. And why is that important? Because what does verse 7 say? The end of all things is near. That's the driving force. Amen? All right, when you guys wake up, review this message later. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time that we can uh, be in your word, Lord, and just really study. God, I, I pray for us that we would have the right motivations and the right actions and the right mission statement in our own hearts. Lord, I, I do pray that we would day by day, little by little, detach ourselves from the world. God, I, I pray that our entertainment, our music, all the, the wiles of the enemy would not have any grip on our mind, but that we would bring all thoughts unto the subjection of Jesus Christ. And that the word of God would guard our minds and hearts, that we would be like that person in Psalm 1, where we meditate on God's law day and night, and because of that, we've become fruitful. We would be like those in Philippians 4, 8, that we focus on those things that are honorable and true and have good virtue, and that we would d- dwell on those things, Lord. Help us to guard our hearts. Help us to love one another. Help us to be hospitable without grumbling. Help us to be active in our service towards you and towards other people. Lord, help us to bring honor to your name. We can live our best life in troubling times. May we be motivated by that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church of Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.